the title of our seminar is Jesus, Adventist, End Time, and Our Relationship to the Government. Now, when I attend a seminar, I always like to know a little bit what the seminar is about. I'll tell you a little bit about what it's about before we actually have prayer, and then we'll talk about how to get the most out of this seminar. I like to think about the purposes of this class in the area of 3D dimension. That is, seeing things in 3D. The first purpose of the class is to deepen our own spiritual experience. You can have a knowledge of what's going to take place in the future, but if you do not have an intimate relationship with Jesus, and if the dynamic living Christ is not living in your heart, all of the knowledge about end-time events is going to avail very, very little. You can understand time charts. You can think in your mind you have it all figured out. But unless Christ breaks your heart, unless you have come to the cross of Calvary and seen Jesus and have been charmed by his love and won by his grace, the knowledge of coming events will mean very little. So the first purpose of our class, particularly in the first section, we're going to be talking about spiritual experience in the light of the final crisis. So the first D is deepen. The purpose of the class is to deepen our spirit. The second is discern. In the area of discernment, it is to discern clearly what is coming um, in the future and have a fairly good comprehensive view of what's coming. The third is to discover. And in the discovery area, I'll spend time discussing the legitimate role of government in a society based on biblical and spirit of prophecy principles and the illegitimate role of government. And I'll give you examples both from the Bible the writings of Ellen White on the legitimate and illegitimate. So three Ds. What are the three Ds, everybody? The first is what? Deepen our spiritual experience. What's the second one? Discern clearly the Bible texts and the role of the future. And the third one is what? To discover. Now, there must always be a fourth D, and that's a disclaimer. Here's my disclaimer. Here is my disclaimer. If you have a lapel mic, it's going to be better because I use my hands and I use the text of Scripture and I'm going to be so, it's going to be difficult for me to hold a mic. Um, If you have a lapel mic and you want to bring it, that's fine. Um, Here's my disclaimer. If you have come to class thinking that Mark Finley is the final authority on mask mandates or vaccines, it is probably you are going to be very, very disappointed. Because the content of the class is neither vaccines or mask mandates. So aren't you glad we got that out of the way right away? (laughs) All right. Now, we're going to pray. And if somebody brings me a lapel mic halfway through, that's fine. If they don't, you can hear me. We're going to pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for biblical principles that help us make critical decisions in our lives in the time that we're living. We sense that we are living in the climactic closing hours of Earth's history. We sense that we're living on the knife edge of eternity. And we sense that the decisions we make personally, as individuals, and corporately as a church can make all the difference in the salvation of our souls and other souls. So grant us during this time together wisdom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you have your Bible, and I really hope you do, because I think many times in seminars, 
we come and we share human wisdom. And I've come to share biblical principles. If you have a Bible, it's going to be much more helpful for you. So to get the most out of the class, you need a Bible, you need a pen. Now, you may have ancient scrolls like I do. You may have the electronic version on your iPhone. I know you, if you look at your iPhone, you're going to be looking at texts and not texting. There's a difference, if you didn't know that, between the biblical text and texting. So I trust that you will not allow the devil to capture away your mind by looking at texts or Facebook during our class. Um, but you will be focused on the Word of God. So you need your Bible, a pen. If you have a notepad, there are a number of statements from the writings of Ellen White that I think are going to be really helpful for you, some of which I had not examined closely until we started this class. And so it's nice to have people that know what they're doing quickly, isn't it? We've had our prayer, so let's launch right into our topic. Now, as time races to a close, God's people are going to need to make very significant decisions when it comes to government authorities. Um, what, and the question that we need to raise is, what biblical principles guide us in those decisions? Not what secular humanism says, not what culture says, but what biblical principles guide us in making decisions when it comes to government authorities. Now, the days ahead are not going to be easy. We have a crisis that will burst upon our world, and the days ahead certainly are going to be climactic days and extremely challenging days, and the choices we make personally are going to have eternal consequences. Our, the response to the issues that we're facing will um, catapult us into these final events. Now, we've, been not, we've not been left in the dark when it comes to what's going to take place. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it in turn. You may have it on your iPhone, but trusting that many of you have brought the scriptures, I want to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We are not left in the dark when it comes to last day events. Seventh-day Adventists have divine guidance. We have divine guidance, both from the principles of Scripture. And although Scripture may not address a specific issue that we'll face in the last days, Scripture gives us principles that enable us as individuals to know how to relate to the authorities. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're looking there at verses 4 through 6, Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, says... But you, brethren or sisters, are not in darkness, so this day, that is the coming of Jesus, should overtake you as a thief. You're all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others, but let us watch and be sober. So Paul says that while the world may be in darkness, while the world may have a very foggy view of the future, where the future may be very cloudy for people in this world. As children of God, we have clear light on the road ahead. Isn't that good news? God has given us that light in the, prof in the prophetic word of Daniel and the prophecies of the book of Revelation. 
they spell out in broad strokes where we're headed. Ellen White, who Seventh-day Adventists believe, spoke with a prophetic voice, takes those basic principles in the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation and makes them much, much more specific. She writes in 8th volume of the Testimonies, page 28, We who know the truth... Who's that? We who know the truth. Who is that? Seventh-day Adventist, sure. We who know the truth should be preparing for what's to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. So we have inside information. We have divine insight. And the prophetic word tells us that we are to prepare for what's to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. You do not prepare for the marathon the day of the marathon. My wife ran her first marathon when she was 70 years old. She ran a second one and a third one. And I remember after one of the marathons, I don't recall whether it was the first or the second, she was running by people that were half her age and some who were not as trim as her and some who were not as slender as her but who were part of the 69% in America who are classified as overweight or obese, when she ran by about three of those, she heard one lady said to, the, said to the other, you know, next year I think we maybe should prepare for this event. <laughs> you do not prepare for the long haul marathon, the day of the marathon, right? And you do not prepare for the crisis that's coming when an economic boycott is passed and a national Sunday law is afflicted upon God's people and a time where we cannot buy or sell. You don't prepare for that when it happens. And this is why Ellen White makes this remarkable statement that should not be passed over lightly in 8th volume of the Testimonies, page 28. We who know the truth should be what? Preparing for what is to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. Facing the trials of today prepares us for the overwhelming challenges of tomorrow. If you were learning to lift weights for the Olympics in Tokyo, would you begin by trying to press 250 pounds over your head? Or might you start with smaller weights, 10 pounds here, 20 pounds, 30 pounds, You don't begin lifting weights by trying to lift 150 pounds if you haven't lifted 10. So God, in his gracious mercy, God, in his loving kindness, lets us face trials today. Are you facing some trials in your life? Facing some challenges in your life? Facing some difficulties in your life? God, in his gracious mercy, allows us to face those trials today, to learn to trust him for the greater trials of tomorrow. Now, according to the book of Revelation, we're going to face an economic boycott. There will be time that we cannot buy or sell. We'll experience ridicule, slander, persecution, imprisonment, and ultimately a death decree. We find in Revelation 12, 13, and 14, the essence of earth's last war. If you have your Bibles, look at Revelation 12, 17. Three times in the book of Revelation, it talks about making war. 
In those instances, the devil makes war with God's people. In two of the three instances, in one of the instances, Jesus returns and he makes war with the wicked forces of this world. In Revelation 12, 17, it says, The dragon is enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring, that's the remnant, King James Version, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So who does the devil make war with? According to this passage, if all you had in the Bible was this passage, who does the devil make war with? Those that do what? Keep the commandments of God. So indeed, indeed, will those who keep the commandments of God be in the midst of a cosmic controversy between good and evil? Will they be in the midst of a titanic struggle between Christ and Satan? According to this text, they will. Now, in Revelation 13, the devil invites two allies to join him in this war, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. So Revelation 13 describes the two compatriots, the two allies of the dragon that join him, and they are two more beasts. So you have the dragon, you have the beast from the land, that's the sea, and the beast from the land. Seventh-day Adventists, rightly so, have identified the sea beast as the papacy and the land beast as the United States in prophecy. So we see this triumvirate spiritualism working powerfully through the dragon. We see Catholicism, false Protestantism. We see this union. According to Revelation 13, those that ultimately don't worship the beast receive... Um, they, they have an economic boycott that they face. And um, you find that, for example, in Revelation chapter 13, and you find it in verses 12 to 16. This economic boycott climaxes in a death decree. Um, you'll find that, again, clear in the text in Revelation 13, verse 15. He was granted power to give life to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak How would the image of the beast speak? How do nations speak? Through their what? Through their laws, sure. So here you have a nation speaking through its laws. He was granted power to give life to the image that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the beast should be what? Killed. So does the Bible teach that those who do not yield to the economic power, the economic boycott, and those who do not yield to the death decree, in other words, those that don't give up their conscientious convictions because of this death decree, does the Bible indicate that they will face an economic boycott and a death decree? It does, doesn't it? It's very clear. Do you see that clearly in Scripture? So that's not something we pull out of the air. It's, it's clear. Uh, you'd have to rewrite the book of Revelation to miss that point. Revelation 14 provides the message to prepare a people for the last crisis. And after Revelation 14 describes a group who worship the creator and a group who worship the beast, in Revelation 14, 12, it says, here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We're going to look at that a little later very, very closely. My point is this. Clearly from the book of Revelation, there will be a time that government oversteps its legitimate authority. So we're going to look at 
what is the legitimate authority of the government and what is the illegitimate authority of the government. But we want to look first before we do that of how personally to prepare for the crisis that's coming. Knowing what's coming, the question is, how can we best prepare? Now, the final events of Christ's life, to me, help us understand how to, have, how to prepare for the final events of Earth's history. If you compare the final events of Christ's life with the final events of Earth's history, there is a very distinct parallel. Jesus faced ridicule, mockery, and slander. Will we face that? Jesus faced unjust beatings, and he faced imprisonment. We will face that. Jesus faced condemnation. He faced the mockery of a trial. And he faced going through a death decree and died on a cross when his disciples forsook him and fled. So when you look at what Jesus went through coming up to Calvary, there are some very distinct parallels between what Jesus went through and what we go through. Now, Jesus went through a time of trouble greater than any time of trouble that we'll ever have to bear. So we can face the future, not in our strength, but in the strength of his victory. And the only way we can face the future is facing it, not because we have a knowledge of what's coming, not because we have strong enough willpower, but we face the future in the strength of Christ's victory. Now, it's going to take more than mere faith in Christ. Mark this point. It's going to take more than faith in Christ to get through the crisis. It's going to take the faith of Jesus. Now, the question becomes, what is the faith of Jesus? It'll take the living faith of Jesus, the dynamic living faith of Christ, dwelling in our hearts, pulsating in our lives, radiating from the essence of our beings. Now, what's the faith of Jesus? It's absolute trust in the heavenly Father when you cannot see. When Jesus hung on the cross, his final words were not, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? He made that statement because he could not see through the portals of the tomb. Sin was so great that it appeared that he would be eternally separated from the Father forever, which would be eternally lost. That's what the guilt and condemnation of sin did to him. But his final words were, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. In other words, Father, although the guilt of sin is pressing out my life, although the sin is crushing me, although I cannot see your Father's face, I cannot see your face, Father, I trust you. So Jesus came to the point of absolute trust when he could not see. Where was the Father when Jesus was dying on the cross? Where was he? Did the Father abandon Jesus? But could Jesus see the Father's face? There is a great misunderstanding among Seventh-day Adventists that I, I think we should clear up here. And that is the concept of going through the time of Jacob's trouble without a mediator. There are those who believe that going through the time of Jacob's trouble without a mediator means that you face it alone in your own willpower and that Christ is not there. That is the furthest thing from the truth. Because if that were true, nobody would ever survive and get through the time of trouble. What does it mean? When human probation closes... And the seven last plagues begin. Revelation 22 says, He that is righteous, let him be what? Righteous still. He that is unrighteous, let him be unrighteous still. So when human probation closes, 
every human being on planet Earth has had an adequate opportunity either to accept or reject Christ. So their destiny at that point is sealed. Therefore, there is not the necessity of, a, of, of Jesus to forgive sin at that point because the destinies of every human being have been settled. They, they, they were all for Christ or against Christ. But that does not mean that Jesus is not there. It does not mean that his power and strength are not supporting us through the time of trouble. It does not mean that he has ceased loving us during that time. I love that old song, Just When I Need Him, Jesus is Near. Just when I falter, just when I fear, just when I need him most. The idea of without a mediator is mediation for sin because, the, because human beings have been settled that issue already in their hearts and in their minds. Now let's go back to this idea of the faith of Jesus. We learn a great deal about the faith of Jesus from a statement that Christ made in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and you're looking at verse 41. We learn a great deal about the faith of Jesus here in the 26th chapter of Matthew and the 41st verse. Now, do you remember the context of Matthew 26. The context of Matthew 26 is Gethsemane. And Jesus is facing the trial of his life. The earth trembles in the balance. And as the earth trembles in the balance, the whole weight of the world is in the balance. And Jesus here is praying. The disciples fall asleep. And uh, Jesus incidentally makes this statement to them in Matthew chapter 26, verse 41, uh, he says, Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. So they were sleeping. Ellen White commenting on this verse says, The sleeping disciples on the verge of, pen, on the, verge of the crucifixion, the sleeping disciples on the verge of the crucifixion parallel the sleeping church on the verge of the coming of Christ. Very interesting statement. Um, but um, Jesus says this, he says to his disciples, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So what does it have to do? How do you, how do you receive this faith of Jesus, this, this quality of faith? See, faith in Jesus is the belief that he's our Messiah. Faith in Jesus is faith in the fact that he lived and died for us. But the faith of Jesus is the quality of faith that Jesus had in trusting the Father when he could not see. It's that living, dynamic faith of Jesus imparted by the Holy Spirit into our hearts that gives us a genuine, authentic Christian experience. Now, how do we, how do we receive that faith of Jesus? Here... Jesus says, watch and pray. So let's take this passage a little bit apart. You notice three things. First, he says, watch. Second, he says, pray. And third, he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So what's this watch all about? Watch has to do with being spiritually alert. It has to do with letting your mind being saturated by scripture. How does the Holy Spirit dwell in the believer? The Bible says in John 6, verse 63, the words that I speak to you, they are what? Spirit and life. So the spirit dwells in us to transform the cognitive thinking process to make us more into the image of Christ as we fill our mind with scripture. Because the same spirit that inspired scripture 
transforms our lives as we study Scripture. So watching has to do with being spiritually alert. It has to do with saturating your mind with Scripture. It has to do with filling your mind with the Word of God. Remember what it says in Psalm 119, verse 11, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that what? That I might not sin against thee. So, so we hide the word of God in our heart. In the book Great Controversy, page 593 and 594, Ellen White comments on this. This is Great Controversy 593, 594. In order to endure the trial before them, they must understand the will of God as revealed in his word. So if I'm going to face the trial before us, what does it say here? We must understand what? The will of God as revealed in his word. They can honor him only as they have a right conception of his character, government, purposes, and act in accordance with them. You know, that stood out to me. Only as we understand God's character as revealed in his word will be prepared for the coming crisis. Only as we understand the principles of God's government. Some people are more interested in political parties in the governments of this world than they are the government of heaven. (laughs) Some people divide the Adventist church based on government decisions and they bring conflict into the church because of a certain political party or a certain government mandate or a certain this or that and they divide the church over that issue. That is a terrible tragedy. Notice what scripture says. It says, only as we have a right conception of his character and his government. And what is the basis of Christ's government? It's love. Love is the very foundation of Christ's government. And purpose is an act in accordance with them. Then this next sentence is one that has really stimulated my thinking for many years. None. What's none mean? What's none mean? Zero. Zero. Nada. None. But those who have fortified the mind with the truths of the Bible will stand through the last great conflict. How many want to stand through the last great conflict? You want to do that? So if you want to stand through the last great conflict, what's necessary according to this? To fortify. What does fortify mean? Yeah, to strengthen your mind. So you become strengthened. None but those who fortified the mind with the truths of the Bible will stand through the last great conflict. To every soul will come the searching test. Shall I obey God rather than men? See, if you and I are going to go through this crisis, to every soul will come the searching test. And how is it that we will get through that crisis? With the faith of Jesus living in our hearts. With the trust of Christ, that quality, that divine faith that lives in our hearts. And how do you receive that? It's clear. None but those who have fortified the mind with the truths of the Bible will stand through the last great conflict. To every soul will come the searching test. Shall I be God rather than men? The decisive hour is now at hand. Are our feet planted on the rock of God's immutable word? Are we prepared to stand firm in the defense of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus? Jesus said, watch and pray. If you want the quality of faith of Christ, watch and pray. Watch It's to be spiritually alert and have your mind filled with the word of God. Now, prayer, Jesus is emphasizing the importance of a meaningful devotional life, of knowing him in prayer, of entering into a heart-to-heart experience with Christ. There's a passage in Ministry of Healing 
page 58, that I have read often. And you know, when you live a very busy life, if you know me at all, you know that my life is not... um, I usually am not sitting by the pool with my feet in the jacuzzi. I mean, that's not bad to do occasionally, but uh, I think I would get too bored. Um, My life is a very hectic life, and I need certain statements from Scripture, certain statements from the writings of Ellen White to to keep me grounded, to keep me rooted, that, that guide me. And here's one that guides me a lot. Ministry of Healing, page 58. All who are under the training of God need the quiet hour for communion with their own hearts, with nature and with God. In them is to be revealed a life that's not in harmony with the world, its customs or its practices. They need to have a personal experience in obtaining a knowledge of the will of God. Next couple sentences. We must individually hear him speaking to the heart. When every other voice is hushed, And in quietness we wait before him. The silence of the soul makes more distinct the voice of God. He bids us be still and know that I am God. When is the last time that you get out alone, maybe walking on a quiet trail, maybe slipping into a room in your house with nobody else was there, opened your word of God and studied not for your Sabbath school lesson. That's good. Not for preparing a Bible study. Not for anything else, but saying, God, speak to me. Speak to me through your word. Guide me through your word. Direct me through your word. Jesus, I long to know you. I long to have a deep, abiding experience with you. More than anything else in my life, it's important, Jesus, to know you. Those quiet moments we hear in our hearts, the still assurance that we are his child, that we can trust him implicitly, that whatever crisis we are going through, he indeed will be with us in that crisis. Jesus was facing the greatest crisis of his life in Gethsemane. Before him lay Pilate's judgment hall. Before him lay the scourge of the whip with jagged metal embedded in leather. Before Jesus was rejection and ridicule and slander and mockery. Before Jesus were the nails, the crown of thorns, the cross. Jesus faced all that and he knew that he needed to slip away and he went to Gethsemane and prayed. Jesus prayed before the crisis to have strength for the crisis. Jesus prayed before the conflict to have strength for the conflict. Jesus prayed before the cross to have strength for the cross. The time that we have right now is a time that God has given us in grace and in mercy to prepare for the crisis that's coming. God is giving each one of us that opportunity to prepare individually for what is going to break upon this world according to 8th Testimonies 28 as an overwhelming surprise. So God indeed is giving us that opportunity now. Now, Jesus said in Gethsemane to his disciples, the sleeping disciples, and as Ellen White says, the sleeping disciples represent a sleeping church. A sleeping church on the knife edge of eternity. A sleeping church just prepared, just before the crisis breaks fully. And Jesus told his disciples, watch, be spiritually alert, have your mind filled with the word of God. Pray, seek an intimate, close relationship with Jesus. Then he said, recognize. 
The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So you can have a very willing spirit. You can have a real desire to go through the crisis that's ahead. Recognize that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. Is there any possibility that you and I can go through Earth's last crisis, even if we desire to, with our own willpower in our own strength? The crisis that's coming is just too great for that. We may have a desire to live a godly life and resist temptation, but we don't have the strength. We're weak, but he's strong. And uh, we overcome not by our willpower, but by his strength. We overcome by the genuine faith of Jesus living in our hearts. And, you know, it's really interesting. We're in Florida, and Florida was known for its huge orange groves. You know, and now they've cut down a lot of those orange groves and made so many housing developments out of them that they're going very quickly. But it's quite interesting to know how they used to sort oranges. You may have heard how they did this many years ago. They would go out and pick the oranges and bring them into a warehouse that was air-conditioned and put them on a conveyor belt. Now, they sorted the oranges by grade A, B, and C. The grade A were the larger, juicier oranges. The grade B were the middle-sized oranges. And the grade C were the little small ones that, yeah, you sell cheap or you try to, you try to do anything you can with them. Years ago, that's the way I sorted. Now, I was thinking about it the other day. And you might say, well, preacher, you got a, quite an imagination. I was thinking about it. What if I were an orange? And I'm out there hanging on a tree, and I'm one of these big, juicy oranges. I'm thinking, man, I can't wait to get into that air-conditioned warehouse. And so they come out and pick the oranges. They put them all together, the A's, the B's, and the C's, and they put them on this conveyor belt. Now, as these conveyor belts go along, there are holes in the conveyor belt big enough to allow the small oranges to fall through, but not big enough for the grade B or A to fall through. So here are these oranges like the Disney World for oranges, you know. They're bouncing along in this conveyor belt and they're having a great time and all the, all the little guys fall through. And I'm one of the big guys saying, man, this is a great ride. You know, I just can't, this is great. And then we go along a little further and there are holes big enough for the B's to fall through, but not for the A's. And all the B's fall through. There they go. And I'm an A, and I'm thinking, man, those poor other guys, they just didn't have enough strength to make it to the end, (laughs) those poor guys. But I'm going through to the end. You know, I'm just this big old juicy orange, man. I'm going through the end. But what do you know? There's a hole around the corner for me, and somebody's going to be drinking me for orange juice in the morning, right? (laughs) He that thinketh that he standeth, Take heed lest he does what? Fall. Because the truth of the matter is that without Jesus, without a living relationship with him, none of us will make it through the crisis. So what have we discovered so far? We've discovered so far that the preparation for oppressive government decrees tomorrow takes place not tomorrow but for today that God is calling us to a deeper experience with him to have the faith of Jesus living in our hearts. That faith of Jesus living in our hearts takes place as we have total self-abandonment and deeper repentance for the sins of our own lives. There are many people that don't like to talk about repentance today. 
Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Isaiah 64.6 says that all my righteous as filthy rags. So coming before Jesus with nothing to offer, nothing in my hand I bring, but to the cross of Christ I cling. It begins, it begins, preparation begins with a total self-abandonment and a total trust in Jesus. It occurs, character transformation occurs as we fill our minds with the word of God. Remember Great Controversy 593, none but those whose minds are filled with the word of God, none but, none but those who fortified their minds with scripture will stand through the final great crisis. So it's that spiritual preparation that is the first thing we do. Now, the, with this background, how do we relate to government? Earthly political systems at times are corrupt and oppressive. What principles guide us? The first principle that we have to understand is that government has a legitimate sphere in the life of its citizens. If you fail to understand that, you totally fail to, uh, you, you miss the point, and we're going to go over that biblically. Um, I want you to think a little bit about Joseph in Egypt. Were the pharaohs of Egypt godly leaders? Were they praying every day for the guidance of God? But yeah, who were they praying to? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Amun-Ra, the, the sun god, you know. Uh, so they were offering prayers to deities. But were they, were, they pray, were, were they monotheists? Were they praying to the true God? Were they godly leaders? Were the pharaohs? In, but did Joseph have a concern for Egypt? Did Joseph have a concern for Egypt? He did, sure. Was there famine and hunger in Egypt? And did Joseph attempt to alleviate that famine and hunger? Sure. So God led Joseph. Did did Joseph act in rebellion against Egyptian society? He did not. So that's something we should put in the back of our minds. Think about Daniel and Babylon. Was Babylon a righteous nation? But did Daniel witness to Nebuchadnezzar? Is it possible that because of Daniel's witness, Nebuchadnezzar could be in heaven? Is that possible? Sure. Did Daniel witness to Cyrus? I really believe that when Cyrus took over, that Daniel sat down with Cyrus and read him the book of Isaiah and told Cyrus about the prophecy that he would take over as king. Ellen White said, why do you think I said it? <laughs> and my brother, <laughs> I wouldn't have said it unless I knew it. <laughs> uh, but thanks for the little <laughs> prompt. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, Ellen White describes it right on target. I just want to see if you knew that. <laughs> so... So, yeah, she describes that Daniel, I mean, this is really exciting stuff. And why are you filling your mind with those video stuff when you've got the most exciting stuff in the world, right? I mean, come on now. So, I mean, yeah, she talks about the fact that uh, Daniel actually sat down with Cyrus when Cyrus became king, you know, Medo Persia, and explained to him the prophecies. And uh, he was just absolutely amazed. So, but Babylon was not some righteous nation. But Daniel didn't rebel against it, did he? Now, what about Paul in Rome? Here are two passages that I think we need to take a look at. Romans chapter 13. The first point we're making is that although government will come at a time that it exercises illegitimate power, 
The government does have legitimate power. And we'll get into this in more detail. So, um, Romans 13. And this is Paul's writing in Rome. And we're going to describe a little bit about the Roman Empire. Romans 13, 1 and on. Let every soul, that's every person, be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. Now, I would have had a hard time writing that if I lived in Rome. (laughs) It would have been very difficult. But did Paul write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He did. And look, let every soul be subject to governing powers, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist, Paul writes, are appointed by God. And Paul is writing that at a time when you have despotic Roman rulers. It's really strange, isn't it? But in the divine destiny of nations, God raises up kings and takes down kings. And God allows certain government rulers to rule, but ultimately God's going to work out his own purpose. So it says, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. So that is an amazing statement. What he's saying is, as a citizen of Roman society, manifest love, kindness, and graciousness, and you will attract that society. One of the more amazing books that I have read part of, I haven't read the whole thing recently, is a book called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. If you have not known that book, it's really amazing. Stark surveys what took place in the first century in the book of Acts in the Roman context. He talks about the praying of believers. He talks about the word of God. But then he goes on to say that Christianity grew most in the, first, in, in the second and third centuries. And he's a sociologist, and so he analyzes why Christianity grew so rapidly. There was a major plague in about 140 to 146, a pandemic that came across the New Testament world. Tens of thousands were dying. And Stark went back and looked at the ancient Roman records of Roman magistrates and authorities, and this is what he discovered. Pagan Romans... Who, were, who had no belief in the Christian faith or Christ, were so concerned about this pandemic that was taking place that, that, wives, that husbands would take their wives out because it was contagious and it was going to killing thousands, you know, millions actually. They would take their wives in the street and let them die, take their children in the street and let them die. So the pagans did everything they could to disassociate themselves from the pandemic. Rodney Stark says that the Christian nurses went into the streets and ministered to them. That the Christian Christians went and brought them food in the streets. And he, makes, he quotes one Roman authority that says, these Christians gave up their lives. And the pagans looked at that and they said, what love is this? What love is this? The same thing that happened in the third, in, in the third century, about 260 Another plague came across Europe. And I have read the Roman records on this, and it's absolutely astounding because the the Christian commitment was so incredibly unselfish that it caught the attention of the Roman authorities. And so this is what Paul is talking about. Rather than rebelling against a government that's oppressive, 
reveal Christ in the marketplace. And as you reveal Christ in the marketplace, that attracts the attention of the Nebuchadnezzars of our day, of the Cyruses of our day, of the Roman authorities of our day. So Paul's there in prison, and what does he say? He says, even some in Caesar's household were converted. So that's Romans 13. Now we go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're looking at the fact that government does have a legitimate authority. The role of the Christian is to, is to be salt of the earth, to be the light of the world, to minister in that context. We're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. Therefore, I exhort. What's that exhort all about? I urge, I encourage. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4. I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Where did Paul write 1 Timothy from? Yeah. From the Mamertine prison. So Paul's in prison unjustly. And he says, pray. Pray for the authorities. Are you praying for your government whatever country you come to today, or are you criticizing? What do you think would do more good, to pray for leaders or to criticize leaders? What do you think? See, here you have clear biblical instruction. Paul says to Timothy, Paul's in prison, and he says, therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and give you thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. See, Paul was wise enough to know that if he led Christians to rebel against an oppressive Roman government, it only would have caused hindrance to the furtherance of the gospel. So Paul's viewpoint was, you pray for your leaders, You accept the legitimate sphere of government, but when it comes to violating the law of God, you stand firm. That was Paul's concept, and that's the concept in the New Testament. That's the concept of Jesus. Now, let's talk a little bit about Jesus in Roman society. Jesus, you remember the famous statement of Jesus, of course, in Matthew 22, verse 21, where Jesus says, render unto what? Caesar the things that are Caesar's, unto God the things that are God. So what's the principle behind that? It's that government has legitimate authority, and you have to respect that legitimate authority. Now, what was, what was um, Roman society like in the days of Christ? The population of Italy in the days of Jesus was approximately 3 million. That was the population of Italy. Rome had a population of about 1 million. Now, here's the interesting thing. The Roman population of one million was 35 to 40 percent slaves. 35 to 40 percent slaves. The slaves in the Roman Empire did not come from Africa most of, most of the time. Some of them did. But when Rome conquered another city, and when it conquered another country, it would take slaves. On one occasion, one of the Roman, um, one of the Roman attacks and invasions is the word I was looking for. One of the Roman invasions... Um, into one of the neighboring uh, countries, brought, they brought back 20,000 slaves. 20,000. So um, the time that Jesus lived, the Roman Empire, uh, the Roman particularly Empire, particularly Italy, had 35 to 40% slaves. Many of the wealthy Romans had 400 to 500 slaves themselves. Four to 500. Now the Roman government oppressed the poor. The Roman government trampled on the rights of women. 
the Roman government exalted the higher classes among the lower classes. So that's Rome. We'll come back to that. Jerusalem had a population in the days of Christ about 80 to 100,000 people. Now, here's the interesting thing. Caesar gave the Jewish population some religious liberty. That's why you read about synagogues in the days of Christ, because the Romans did not um, curtail religious worship. The Jews could go to synagogues. The Jews could observe their Old Testament dietary laws. Um, He also gave them the right to meet regularly as much as they want, to decide their own affairs, to contribute money to their own causes. Um, So that the Jews, for the most part, in the Roman Empire, had a, a semblance of religious freedom. But the Roman government, at its core, was cruel, oppressive, and corrupt. Its government government leaders were selfish, immoral, greedy, and dishonest. Now, a good example of this corruption was Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great died in 4 BC, before Christ's ministry. But it's interesting. He's a good example, I think, of the despotism of the Roman leadership. Herod had at least eight wives... He fathered 14 children, and he was so paranoid, and it just gives you an example of the paranoid nature of these Roman leaders, and it's, it's pretty typical of them. He was so paranoid that he murdered his own wife because he thought she was getting too popular, and he killed three of his own sons. One of his sons was getting so popular that Herod was afraid that he may be appointed king before Herod's death, And so he said to him, well, why don't you come on vacation with me to one of my palaces? He did. And then he said to the boy, why don't you go uh, swimming tonight? It's such a beautiful night in this beautiful swimming pool in the back of the palace. Boy went out to go swimming in the swimming pool, and Herod had his servants go and keep dunking him under the water till he drowned. So he drowned his own son. Others he would behead. When Herod died in 4 BC, there was, um, he was afraid nobody would mourn his death because he was such a wicked ruler. And so this is what he did. He, he put in his will, in the last one testimony, on the day of his death that his soldiers should go through um, the, his territory and kill like 20,000 people. Because he said, then somebody's going to cry at my death, but if I don't do that, nobody's going to cry at my death. I mean, you see the terrible despotic rulers that occurred. And uh, now the question is, Jesus lived in that oppressive, cruel Roman society. How did Jesus relate to unjust laws? How did Jesus relate to the Roman society? One of the most magnificent statements in all of literature on Jesus and Roman society and Jesus and civil reforms is Desire of Ages, page 509 and 510. And I'm going to read two paragraphs from this. If you don't know this reference, you're going to need it in your local church. So you're going to want to write this one down. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the most powerful, clear statement. The government under which Jesus lived was corrupt and oppressive. So the government was what, everybody? What, what book am I reading from? What pages am I reading from? You don't know. 509 and 510. Thanks, Tom. 509 and 510. Okay. So the government under which Jesus lived was what? Corrupt. What else was it? Oppressive. On every hand, there were crying abuses. Extortion. What's, what's extortion? Yeah, t- how'd you know what that was? No, <laughs> okay. Extortion. Okay, it's taken by the dozen body. Intolerance in grinding cruelty. Yet the Savior attempted no civil reforms. Wow. 
It was oppressive. Crying abuses. I continue. He attacked no national abuses, nor condemned the national enemies. He did not interfere with the authority or administration of those in power. He who was our example kept aloof from earthly governments. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, but because the remedy did not lie in merely human and external measures. To be efficient, the cure must reach men individually and must regenerate the heart. Listen, not by the decisions of courts or councils or legislative assemblies, not by the patronage of worldly men is the kingdom of Christ established, but by implanting of Christ's nature in humanity through the work of the Holy Spirit. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1, verse 12 and 13. Then Ellen White says, here is the only power that can work for the uplifting of of mankind. And the human agency for the accomplishment of this work is the teaching and practicing of the word of God. So Jesus sees this oppressive government. He sees all this legislation that's so oppressive. Does he battle against it? Does he write articles against it? Does he get on the internet and uh, send out... No, excuse me. Does... (laughs) Does, does Jesus go on Facebook and condemn it? Is that what Jesus does? What's Jesus' method? It is to teach the principles of the kingdom of God and live a life of transformation in society because society is transformed one by one. Does this mean the Christian church should never speak out against injustice? It does not mean that at all. Does this mean that the Christian church should be indifferent to the needs of the poor and the marginalized? Not at all. We need to be there. Be there feeding the poor. Be there ministering to the hungry. Be there with our health care. So Christians are engaged in society, not separate from society. We are the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. But our role is not to be attempting to change society by merely changing laws. Now, certainly as citizens, we can vote for the best possible legislation. We have certainly responsibilities. Ellen White makes an interesting statement, though. She says, if you vote, these are her words, not mine, keep your voting to yourself. (laughs) That's an interesting statement, isn't it? So it indicates that some people are going to vote. That's not a sin to vote. You can look at the early writing. You can look at writings of Ellen White. You'll understand that. But look, it's not something to divide the church. Do we at times see political issues differently? Is that possible? Is it possible for two faithful Seventh-day Adventists to see political issues differently? Is it possible for for faithful Seventh-day Adventists to see issues regarding a pandemic differently? Is that possible? Do do all Adventists think the same on that? But is there a bigger issue? The proclamation of the three angels' message in the light of the cross to get a people ready for the coming of Jesus. That is our goal. That is our goal. Now... Why did Jesus take the position he did? Because he is the author of a new creation. And society is changed as people are changed. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 11. Somebody uh, tell me what time it is, please. 11, what time? 42. Okay, I'm supposed to stop at 1 o'clock, so I'm fine. <laughs> no, what time am I supposed to stop here? Twelve. I, okay, we're, we're, we're going to take this in for a landing, so don't worry about it. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? We're talking about the power of the gospel to change society. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. That's quite a list, isn't it? Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. How'd you like to have those people in your church? (laughs) Read the next verse, my dear sister. (laughs) Nor extortion will inherit the kingdom of God. And of such were some of you. And of... But you are washed. I'm glad they're washed in your church. But you're sanctified. I'm glad they're sanctified in your church. But you are justified by the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of God. Is it possible for that long list to be transformed by God's grace, or is God's grace insufficient to do that? Is God's grace powerless to do that? So why didn't Jesus go after the laws of society? Because he knew they had no power to change a fornicator, a thief, an adulterer. He knew that they didn't have that power. So Christ was not concerned as much. Notice, I'm careful what I say here. As much with the laws of society. He wanted just laws. He wanted righteous laws. He was concerned about the oppressed and the poor. And certainly the Christian church ought to be in there. But that's not where the ultimate solution is. The ultimate solution is to change the heart. Because you can change a law, but if you don't change the heart, you haven't changed people. If any man is in Christ, he is a what? New New creature or new creation. So Jesus wanted to see recreation in the hearts and minds of people. Through the power of Christ, we become a new creation. Changed. Society will only be permanently changed when people are permanently changed, and that comes with the power of Christ. Now, according to Jesus, government has a legitimate role in the lives of citizens, but its power is limited. The power of government is always limited. Secular governments have very specific rules. Now, let me try to get into some things that that are a little more touchy. One of the rules of government is to provide a safe, secure environment for citizens to exercise their God-given rights and free exercise of religion. Wouldn't you say that's a role of government? To provide a safe, secure environment so that citizens can exercise their God-given rights and free exercise of religion, or no religion if they so choose. Another role of government is to create an an environment of opportunity where every citizen... Now, notice I don't say that the government provides these things but has access to them. Another role of government is to create an environment of opportunity where every citizen has access to housing, a food, a good job, water, health care, and an education. Access to, not providing for. There's a major difference. Now, it's not necessary government's role to provide these things, but it's the government's role to assure that they're available and accessible. Although human governments have authority that's to be respected, its authority is limited and always subject to the higher power of God. We see this illustrated well in Acts chapter 5, verse 27 to 29. You see it, Acts 5, 27 to 29. You see it illustrated very, very well there. In Acts 5... The temple authorities, in this case, um, acting as civil rulers as well as religious rulers, along with the Roman rulers, attempt to keep silent um, Peter and John. Acts 5, we're just going to look at verse 28 for time and 29. Did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. These are the the Jewish authorities. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So when government steps over the line 
and enforces religious decrees or when it violates individual conscience and that conscience is biblically informed, we ought to obey God rather than men. The clearest statement in the writings of Ellen White on the role of government in its relationship to individuals was written in a little pamphlet called Home Missionary, November 1, 1893. It's hard to find that, but you can find this same statement in Last Day Events, page 142. And so here's what it says. The people of God will recognize human government as an ordinance of divine appointment. Did we read that in the Bible? We did. And will by precept and example teach obedience to it as a sacred duty as long as its authority is exercised within its legitimate sphere. Now that statement is worth pondering. I had never read it before, but it's in this little home missionary uh, November 1, 1893. The people of God will recognize human government as an ordinance of divine appointment and will by precept and example teach obedience to it as a sacred duty. So we have a sacred duty to the government that we're under so long as its authority is exercised within its legitimate sphere. So does government have a legitimate sphere? Yes. yes. But can it step out of that legitimate Yeah. Now notice the rest of the statement. But when, it cl- when its claims conflict with the claims of God, we must choose to obey God rather than men. She's commenting on Acts 5.29. The word of God must be recognized and obeyed as an authority above that of all human legislation. So the word of God is higher than all human authority or legislation. Thus saith the Lord is not to be set aside for thus saith the church or the state. The crown of Christ is to be uplifted above all the diadems of earthly potentates. <laughs> the crown of Christ. Now, what can be the legitimate role of government? Let me give you some scenarios. Um, in a free society, government does not have the legitimate right to coerce the conscience of an individual as long as the personal choices Uh, don't harm or affect others. Once my choices impact others, government has a role to prevent harm to others. Let me give you an example. Does the second, do do one of the amendments of the United States um, allow American citizens to carry guns? Does one do that? What amendment is that? Second Second Amendment, okay. So American citizens have that right, okay. But what if I'm what if I'm practicing target practice in my backyard and I shoot across your fence through your window? Do I have that right? Why not? Because my right does not give me the right to harm you. All right, now let me ask you another question. Let's take smoking. Should the government pass a law that nobody can smoke a cigarette in America that it's against the law if they do it in their own home? What do you think? Uh, okay, Should, okay. Yeah, yeah, you've got to follow my questioning now. Don't, don't get ahead of me here. Should the government pass a law so that you should not be able to smoke in your own home? Should the government pass a law that you can't smoke in a restaurant? That's different. Why is it different? What is the principle that we're talking about? The government has a legitimate sphere to protect its citizens, Right. Do we all agree on that principle? Should the government pass a law that um, drinking is illegal, drinking alcohol is illegal in the United States? (laughs) Oh, I knew this is an Adventist audience. (laughs) Did they ever try that? Did it it work real good? Why didn't it work good? Okay, now, 
should the, should the government pass a law, let's agree that, that that probably shouldn't have been done, okay? Let's agree that the government should not pass a law, just for purpose of discussion, you know, give me a break a little bit. So, now, should the government pass a law that you cannot drink when you drive? Yes. Why? All right. Should the government pass a law? Is it legitimate for the government to pass a law for you to get a driver's license? Should anybody be able to drive without a driver's license? Why? All right. He that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You just got to think about this. If you accept this principle, if you accept the principle that the legitimate sphere of government is not to violate conscience or biblical principles. But government does have a sphere to protect its citizens. Do we agree on that principle? Okay, we're going to move on now. In a free society, um, there are times that government will overstep its bounds and compel the conscience in violating biblical teachings and religious convictions. I'm going to give you two or three examples of times in American history and history when this, this has happened. And then I'm going to give you four principles to guide you in these decisions. In September 18, 1850, the Fugitive Slave Law was passed in the United States. Now, the Fugitive Slave Law said this. It said that even in free states, if a slave had escaped from the southern part of the United States to the northern part of the United States, if a slave had escaped, you had to return that slave. Bounty hunters were, were um, established. They got $10 for every slave they returned if that slave was condemned for fleeing. And if the slave ever got off, they only got $5. But at least they brought him back, is what they said. How were Seventh-day Adventists going to relate to that law? That law was passed by the Congress of the United States government. And I'm going to read you what Ellen White said about that law. First volume of the Testimonies, page 202. The law of our land requiring us to deliver a slave to his master, we are not to obey. We are not to obey. And we must abide by the consequences of violating the law. So Ellen White says, look, we're not to obey that law. That is violating a biblical principle. But she said, if we choose to disobey the law, based on the biblical principle that God has created all men in his image, based on that principle based on the biblical principle that men and women are creating, we have to face the consequences of violating that law. So she was very clear. So that, that's a, an example. Um, I could give you many examples from the former Soviet Union where the government passed laws that our people just could not obey. Uh, for example, uh, many of them uh, passed laws on going to school on Sabbath, that you had to send your children to school on Sabbath. And many of our leaders said, no, we conscientiously can't do that because these kids are being uh, educated in the ideology of uh, communism. We have situations where in the military, for example, in the former Soviet Union, um, where our believers were forced to go to church, uh, forced to work on Sabbath. So in those instances... Christians were not to obey. Now, here are four principles to keep in mind in our relationship to, our go- to the government. Four principles. Number one, as Christians, we're ambassadors for Christ. We're to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. We have a higher calling, a greater mission, a larger vision than being immersed in a political party politics. Do you agree with that? Amen. Salt, light, that's principle number one. Principle number two, 
Scripture give, invites us to pray for our governmental leaders. Amen. Principle three, where possible, where possible, we're to obey the laws of the state as long as they do not violate biblical principles and our conscientious convictions guided by the Bible and directed by the Holy Spirit. Four, when there's a conflict between what government authorities compel us to do and the word of God, we have no option but to obey God's word and leave the results from him. There's a number five. I always add one. Some things are a matter of personal choice, and they should never be allowed to divide the church on. Paul says in Romans 14 and 7, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. We are facing a crisis in America that is only going to get worse. But the good news is that Jesus is coming. The good news is that you and I, as we watch, as we pray, as we trust him, we'll get through the crisis. Is an economic boycott coming? It is. Is a national Sunday law coming? It is. Is a death decree coming? It is. But will Jesus have a church that rises to the occasion, filled with the Spirit, empowered by the latter rain, charmed by Christ's love, transformed by Christ's cross, revealed to a waiting world and a watching universe the glory of his character and the beauty of his love? That's the destiny to which we have been called. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you with all of our hearts for these principles in the Bible. How we thank you for Jesus, Savior, Redeemer, Lord. We pray that we'd prepare today for what's coming tomorrow. That we'd prepare for those events that'll overtake this world as an overwhelming surprise. Strengthen us. Empower us. May we be salt and light, the ambassadors of Christ. Help us not run from the troubles and needs of the world. Help help us run to them. Help us be your healing balm for the sickness of sin that we see in our world. Strengthen us to face the days ahead, but help us face them, not in our strength, but in yours. Not in fear, but in trust in Christ's name. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.